0: Dripping Down Science The Naked Scientists
1: Hello, it's Sunday the 26th of February. Welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Hannah Critchlow. Hello, Hannah. Hello. And also with Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave. Hello. This week, we are taking on your science questions, and we'll be finding out, is Wi-Fi bad for your brain, or maybe even your health in general? And why does blowing on your hand feel hot when you do it with an open mouth, but cold if you purse your lips? Don't believe me? Try it. And this, just in... How do they get the stripes into toothpaste? We'll find out very shortly. Hannah?
2: Well, in the news, we'll be hearing how computer games could help to improve the symptoms of schizophrenia and also a new way to see individual atoms and molecules.
3: I've got a well-known experiment for you to try, but it's one that people often get confused by. Grab a jar, a candle, a dish and some water and I'll explain what you need to do shortly.
1: I'm intrigued, thank you, Dave. Meanwhile, here's how you can get in touch with us. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also write on our Facebook page, that's at facebook.com/slash the Naked Scientists, or you can drop us an email. Our email address, Chris at the Scientists.com.
0: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKFast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk.
1: And straight in at the deep end with our first question. Neil Briscoe. Hello, Neil. Hello, Chris. What can we do for you? Well, I've got a question
3: about primary colours. If you were to ask me what they were, I would tell you red, green, and blue. But I've had discussions with artists, and they insist that the primary colours are
4: red, blue, and green. And I've heard this is something to do with pigments versus light, but I'm not quite sure how it works.
3: The primary colours of light are pretty much red, green and blue and that's nothing to do with physics, it's all to do with biology. It's because in your eye you've got three different types of cones, three different types of sensor, ones which absorb reddish light, ones which detect greenish light and ones which detect bluish light. Light is actually an incredible mixture of an infinite number of different colours but your eyes kind of approximate it to reddish, bluish and greenish so if you mix red light and green light um, you can actually confuse your eyes and make it look like it's yellow light and so by mixing red green and blue light you can make any color of the rainbow pretty much it's actually slightly more complicated to do, like, than, than that but that's the way of these things but if you're dealing with um, printing or paints you're taking white light which has got all the colors of the rainbow in it and you're taking colors away so if you've got red green and blue shining down on a red piece of paper all that comes back is red light so you see red now, the primary colours from that isn't um, adding colours together, you're actually subtracting it, you're taking things away. So the primary colours are taking red away, which actually means turquoise colour or cyan, taking green away, which is um, basically purple, and taking blue away, which is actually yellow. So actually the primary colours of pigments are cyan, um, magenta, cyan, magenta, purple, and yellow. Red, yellow and blue are
1: not any kind of primary colours at all and it's just primary school teachers trying to confuse you. <laughs> it's quite intriguing, isn't it? Because you're, it is literally down to what is going on on a surface in order to make a colour that you see. And so white light hits a surface all the other wavelengths get absorbed apart from the one that you see coming back to you versus if I shine light at you, I'm making some coloured light that your eye is interpreting as the the colour I shone at you. Yeah, it's to do with how you're getting to those final colours which hit your eye. Neil, uh, are you more relaxed about that now?
4: Yes, I am. Thanks very much.
1: (laughs) So your artist friends will be happy? I think so. (laughs) That's good. Anything else we can do for you?
4: Well, there was one other thing. I was lucky enough or otherwise, to be on a video conference the other day. And while I was speaking, I kept hearing my own
3: voice coming back at me, and I found that very confusing. Why is it the brain can't cope with this short delay?
1: Well, sometimes it's a very long delay, isn't it? Certainly on my mobile phone. (laughs) I don't know about yours. But I think the reason for this is it's a learned thing. Because when you do lots of radio programmes, sometimes because of the processing involved in making radio programmes, you end up hearing a delay on your own voice. And initially, when you first start doing this, it's terribly distracting and you learn to ignore it. But I think what happens, we're very used to the fact that when we speak, you get sound coming at you from two different sources. One is the vibrations coming out of your mouth through the air and into your ears. The other is that when you speak or sing or make noises, the vibrations go into your bones and then into your inner ear via that route. So you have these two sources of sound coming at you. And I think we learn to control our speech patterns and our speech speech loudness and the cadence of our speech and we make ourselves sound interesting by listening to ourselves in real time you get used to that latency or the delay between you making the sound and then the stimulus coming back at you and obviously when it's coming through those two routes out of your mouth and into your ears again the, the latency is incredibly short so the feedback loop is optimised to work that way when you start using electronic equipment and you try to apply the same latency, of course there's a, a much bigger delay, so your brain gets confused because it's trying to feed back and control what you're saying, but it's listening out for the information and it's coming much later than it thought it would. This confuses the brain, gets its interest going, and it says, right, I'm now listening for the sound, it's not there, oh there it is, and that delay confuses you and you get sort of sidetracked and it's that sidetracking that we find distracting until you learn to suppress it or ignore it so i think that's basically what's going on i think if you sent if you spent your life living on tele, tele- and video conferences you probably find it a lot easier to cope with but i wouldn't advise it
3: <laughs> i'd agree with that
1: thanks for joining us on the show neil thanks very much uh, jeff is with us hello jeff hello we've just been talking about the brain i understand that you have something related to that
5: I do. Um, I read. I read an article, and I, I did look it up today, and it basically stated they came out very strongly to state that Wi-Fi was indeed having an effect on brains, but specifically young brains because their skulls are thinner. With everything that we have now, it's impossible to go virtually anywhere, especially in your home, and not be inundated with not just the signal from your own Wi-Fi, but from maybe 10 other signals. So when I read that, just as a sort of a precaution, I went ahead and just sort of curtailed our use and hardwired a computer.
1: So your question would be, you know, to what extent is your curtailing justified? Hannah, what do you think?
2: Well, there is a paper that was published in 2010 by Martin Bootman at the Babraham Institute in Cambridge. And they looked in rat hippocampal neurons, so primary neurons, so they're quite susceptible to external environments, getting their neural circuitry These are brain cells. So these are brain cells in a Petri dish. And they exposed these brain cells in a Petri dish to um, 900 megahertz of electromagnetic radiation, which is quite a high whack of electromagnetic radiation for 30 minutes.
1: So where does that sit in the kind of wavelengths because a microwave album would be 2.5 gigahertz. That would be yeah. about 2.5 strong times fast, um, high frequency than that, wouldn't it? So where's 900 megs? 900 megahertz, it's still in the microwave region, um, It's, but it's
3: at the bottom end of the microwave region. Some mobile phones work on that, others are a bit higher than microwave. So it's in the
1: right sort of ballpark. What did they find, Hannah?
2: Well, they looked specifically at calcium signalling in these nerve cells and they looked by labelling, uh, by using a fluorescent dye to tag to calcium activity. And calcium signalling is very important because it's involved in your transmission and enzyme activity um, and brain information processing and and transfer
1: so use the calcium signal as an index of what the cells are doing asking okay we zap the cells with microwaves or not and see if there's a difference
2: exactly yeah and they 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 didn't find any difference at all so they um they had a look at the baseline calcium levels after 30 minutes of 900 megahertz and they found no effect no significant effect on the calcium signaling they also um provoked a calcium response by adding an agonist that caused a large calcium response, and they found that the uh, the electromagnetic radiation had no effect on these cells in a Petri dish.
1: And obviously we're interpreting this within the constraints that this is a certain frequency, we're exposed to many others. I mean, what do you think, Dave? Are you, are you happy with that piece of research, or would, would there be other questions you'd like to ask? It's kind of not an le- kind of electromagnetic
3: radiation which is likely to give you cancer directly. Its wavelength uh, for mobile phones is several centimeters, so it's not going to interact strongly with anything, which is which is a lot smaller than that. So the only conceivable effect I could imagine would be some very sort of large scale thing. But I mean, there hasn't been any big effect which people have, been, have noticed. People haven't suddenly all started keeling over and dying. So I wouldn't have thought it's. I'm <laughs> not worrying about it anyway. <laughs> Dave, you've been scanning the news this week. What have you got for us? Well, I saw a wonderful story. Scientists have managed to build a microscopic MRI, or pretty close to one. By measuring how atoms oscillate in the magnetic field, we've learned a huge amount of chemistry using something called nuclear magnetic resonance machines. And they've been adapted to form magnetic resonance imaging machines, or MRI machines, that allow doctors to study the soft parts of the body. These all work by using the way atoms oscillate in a magnetic field. This is very useful because electrons around the atom, and the electrons in the neighbouring atoms can all affect this so you can gain a huge amount of information chemically about what's going on and you can look right inside a body. But the one problem is you can't really distinguish very, very small objects but Shimon Kolekowitz, um from Harvard and colleagues are aiming at something rather better. Rather than using an atom as a magnetic resonator to measure the magnetic field, they're using a mechanical resonator, effectively a microscopic tuning fork with a tiny magnet on the end, and they mounted it on something called a magnetic force microscope, which scans this resonator across the surface with subatomic precision. So they actually know where this is to less than the radius of an atom the local magnetic field will affect the vibration of the resonator and they can measure it and if it comes to an atom which is vibrating at a similar frequency they can interact with one another so they've used this ma- machine to measure magnetic interactions with a single nitrogen atom inside diamond so the a diamond with a nitrogen atom where carbon should be and they've actually managed to see this and they've managed to see the magnetic effects it has
1: Why were they looking at diamond? Is that because it's so so regular and the odd atom that's not where it's supposed to be stands out like a sore thumb so it makes it a very convenient- convenient convenient thing to study simply?
3: I think there's two things one it's a very very smooth thing and you can see an individual atom and it stays still it doesn't wander off and the other one is this is essentially a single quantum mechanical system because the other really neat thing about this is they can interact with a single atom effectively which is behaving as a quantum mechanical object and so this could be really really useful for things like quantum computing so it's a way of getting information in and out of a quantum computer so they're very very early stages but possibly they could be using this to build it into some kind of MRI scanner where you can actually scan atoms inside a single molecule or something which would be absolutely incredible.
1: Sounds amazing, thank you Dave. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Hannah Critchlow and with Dave Ansell. Coming up in a second we'll find out why what a woman eats even before she is pregnant can have long-term genetic consequences for her baby Professor Nabil, Nabil Afara from Cambridge University has just published a paper on this this week he's going to be joining us shortly to talk about it Shelley Wolfe uh, emailed us to say how can you blow both hot and cold my 10 year old son Joshua Wolfe asked me why the air that you breathe out when you blow candles out is cold as opposed to the warm air that you breathe out when you want to say mist up a window
3: yes this is a really interesting one basically um, we did this as a kitchen science a few, uh, couple of years ago If you blow with a very, very pursed lip very quickly, it feels cold. And then if you blow with an open mouth slowly at your hand it feels warm. This is all to do with um, what's happening to the air if you're blowing through a very very narrow pursed lips um, the air is going very quickly and it tends to mix in very very strongly with the air around it so what you're doing is you're actually what's hitting your hand is mostly air from the room and it's moving quite quickly and quick moving air tends to feel cold because it it moves heat away from your hand quicker so mostly what's hitting your hand is air from the room whereas if you um, breathe slowly with your mouth open that's a much smoother jet of air, it's also a much wider jet of air so it doesn't mix in nearly as quickly so what hits your hand is mostly coming out of your lungs which is warm you can actually get the warm effect apart from the fast moving air by if you put your finger right right close to your mouth when you blow it still feels quite warm it also gets quite damp Um, and that's because it hasn't had time to mix in with the air around it so it's still warm and
1: you can feel it and if you go to nakedscientist.com slash kitchen science, you'll find Dave's write-up of that experiment, some lovely pictures to actually show you that mixing phenomenon with the fast-moving air that brings in the cold air that makes your hand feel cold. Hannah, Android Neox on Second Life has been listening to the item you covered on exposure to microwave radiation and nerve cell health, and he or she wonders, Did, do you or can you explain why calcium is indicative of overall health of a nerve cell?
2: Well, that's a really good question. They were specifically looking at calcium because calcium is such an important iron um, involved in signalling between nerve cells. So it's, it's important for building circuits and allowing passage of information from one nerve cell to another. And it's particularly important for developing brains and, and brain activity. So they were using calcium as an indicator for the primary hippocampal cell health.
1: Thank you, Hannah. Quick question from Kathy Bateman came in this afternoon uh, via email, Chris at thenakedscientist dot com. She says she actually listens in Austin, in Texas, and says. How long does something need to be in contact with the floor to pick up germs? Around here people talk about a five-second rule for food that's fallen on the ground. The idea is that if the food item has been on the ground for less than two seconds or five seconds, it's not had enough time to pick up any germs and therefore it's OK to eat. Let's uh, poll the panel here. Dave, uh, would you pick up and eat something off the floor if it's been there for fewer than five seconds? I, I'm not sure that
3: five seconds is important. It rather depends on the floor. <laughs> if it's
1: a fairly clean floor, then I see Hannah, that. your view?
2: I think I'm a bit of a grot bag. Mine's the 30-second
1: rule. Well, you go for as long as 30 seconds. Well, the answer is Paul Dawson is a researcher at Clemson University, has a very nice paper on this in the Journal of Applied Microbiology. In fact, he recruited his own students to do the experiment. They tested things like salmonella being placed on uh, a surface and looked at how long the salmonella may remain viable after a surface is contaminated. The answer is for four weeks. So basically, if there's contamination on a surface, it remains viable for a long time. So if you drop something on it, you could pick something up. Then they did the experiment with food items being dropped onto a surface and removed within a certain threshold length of time. The answer was that 99% of the bacteria that got transferred at any time all transferred instantaneously. So there is no 5-second, 2-second, 30-second rule. Even for grot bags like you, Hannah, as you call yourself, uh, the answer is that instantaneous contact will transfer microorganisms, and if there are pathogens there which can survive for a long time, they will end up on the food And depending upon how pathogenic they are and whether or not you then re-sterilise the food, perhaps with temperature, for instance, then you could get something from it. So if in doubt, throw it out, I think is the bottom line. Uh, We've heard from Malcolm in Lowestoft, Man After Your Own Heart, Hannah, who says, food on the floor. My rule is if I drop food on the floor, unless the food is, the floor is really grotty. He certainly is after your own heart, Hannah. Unless the fly is really grotty, I tend to eat it in the interests of my antibodies and my immune system. So he's educating his immune system. He's obviously a man who subscribes to the hygiene hypothesis with that one. Dave, uh, uh, you asked people at the beginning to grab one or two things for our kitchen science this week. Would you like to give us a reminder and tell people what you want them to do? OK, I asked you to grab a jar or a glass, a candle and
3: a sort of flat bowl type object. We you to get the flat bowl object, put some a little bit of water in the bottom, so maybe kind of half a centimetre of water in the bottom. Um, it's kind of useful to get a few coins, and if you kind of put a little circle of coins at about the same radius as your um, jar, um, because what you're going to do then is put a candle inside, light the candle... Um, get it burning nicely then once it's burning nicely put the jar over the candle upside down so it's just standing on top of those coins um, but still the bottom edge of it so what used to be the top edge now the bottom edge is still under the water then
1: leave it and see what
3: happens
1: okay and if you could let us know what your findings are email chris at com or tweet at naked scientists hannah what's been happening in the world of science in your neck of the woods
2: Well, there's been a fantastic uh, study published in the journal Neuron. So using certain computer games, it turns out, can improve the symptoms of schizophrenia and produce long-lasting benefits for patients. So schizophrenia affects 1% of the population and people with the condition develop hallucinations, so hearing sounds and voices that aren't really there and seeing things that don't exist in reality. They also develop delusions, which are false ideas, to help them to come to terms with these strange experiences. And together, these effects can destroy a person's quality of life and their relationships with others. But now a team at the University of California San Francisco led by Karuna Sobraniam have found that using specially written computer games that rely heavily on memory and also require players to intensively process auditory and visual information including interpreting facial expressions can produce significant improvements in the player's symptoms. The researchers compared a group of 31 schizophrenics and 16 healthy control individuals over a 16-week period. After a baseline brain scan of all the individuals, the schizophrenics were split randomly into two roughly equal groups, one of which played commercial computer games and the other spent the same amount of time, 80 hours, using the brain training software built by the researchers. And at the end of the study, the participants were reassessed using a range of behavioural and scanning-based methods. Compared with the individuals who played the commercial computer games, those that received the brain training at treatment showed a significant improvement in their accuracy of information recall. This was mirrored by improved social functioning and an increase in activity in a brain region called the medial prefrontal cortex, which is concerned with planning and decision making. I spoke to the study co-author, Sofia Vinogradov, about the implications of their findings.
6: These data raise the exciting likelihood that the neural impairments in schizophrenia and undoubtedly other neuropsychiatric illnesses are not immutably fixed, but instead may be amenable to well-designed behavioral interventions that target specific restoration of neural system functioning. These findings may have far-reaching implications for helping to improve the quality of life for patients suffering from neuropsychiatric illness, not just from schizophrenia, but also other disorders characterised by impaired neural system functioning, such as autism and obsessive-compulsive disorder.
2: Sophia
1: Vinogradov, who published that study this week in the journal Neuron. Gosh, what an amazing story. Software for schizophrenia. Well, story of the week for me has to be this one, which comes from the Russian Academy of Sciences. It's published in the journal PNAS this week. The first author is Svetlana Yashina. She and her colleagues say that they have brought back to life a plant that hasn't grown on Earth for 30,000 years, or more precisely, 31,800 years, give or take 300 years, which is how old the carbon dating of the plant material they started from is. What they did was to go to northeastern Siberia, where 38 metres down in the permafrost they found some frozen squirrel burrows. And in those burrows were sequestered, what squirrels normally hide, seeds, fruits and nuts. And amongst them were some campion seeds. And they took these seeds away, they looked viable, and so they put them in nutrient broth in the laboratory and tried to grow them. Now, the seeds did show some signs of life, but rather like a slightly broken computer where you press the power button and it spins the fan up and starts the hard disks but won't quite boot, these seeds didn't quite get it together in terms of their germination. But in some cases, a structure called the placenta, which is the part of the plant that links the parent plant onto the newborn seed, that did show some signs of changing in the nutrient solution. So the researchers focused on these placental tissues. And in the right conditions, they managed to make them put out sprouts and roots. And very quickly, they were able to produce plants from them. And from those plants, they got flowers. And from those flowers, they got pollen, they were able to cross pollinate the plants, and then produce seeds that were viable. So they've now got "...recreated and resuscitated in the laboratory species of this campion, which haven't grown on Earth for over 31,000 years, and they do, when grown side by side with the current form of the same species, look subtly different." Now, this is obviously an interesting breakthrough in its own right, but it does tell us enormous amounts about how we preserve plant tissue. There are a number of initiatives around the world, including one in Norway and others elsewhere, where they are storing seeds from all of the plants that are currently living on Earth so that if the worst comes to the worst and a species goes extinct, we have this seed bank from which we can recreate the plant in future. So by studying this sort of thing and how this phenomenon came to be, Researchers are hoping that they'll learn a lot more about how we can bring other plants back from the brink, or back from the dead, in future. Coming up in just a second, we'll hear from Nabil Lafara, who has been doing this work looking at how what you eat could have genetic implications for women who are pregnant, or even not even pregnant Yet. Before that, though, Dave Louise Allen got in touch this afternoon on Facebook, facebook.com slash the naked scientist, if you'd like to join us via that route. And she says, why, when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste with the lines of separate colours, why do they not all smudge into each other? They always come out in perfect lines. How does it work?
3: essentially is by clever engineering if you look carefully at the toothpaste instead of kind of making those beautiful swooshes of toothpaste which they always show on the adverts if you sort of chop the toothpaste straight you'll see that the colors are only just on the surface in the middle is all just the normal white toothpaste so what they're actually doing is in the nozzle or very very close to the nozzle which squirts toothpaste out they've got three other little nozzles attached to bags of color or several different other nozzles attached to bags of color so when 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 you squeeze a toothpaste, Um, it both squeezes the main toothpaste bit and those little bags. And so as the main toothpaste comes out, the kind of extra coloured bits get squeezed out on the outside. So you end up with a white tube with little
1: coloured bits around the outside and the beautiful toothpaste, which you obviously love. Um if you don't believe us, cut a tube up and you'll see this marvelous bit of engineering for yourself. Got patented in America. I think in the 1960s, I think they, or the late '50s that she introduced that as a, as a patent a major selling point and signal in the UK, I think was one of the first brands to use it in this country. Quite believe-
3: I think it's based on a, kind of a similar system for making icing. Um, so <laughs> Indeed, you, you icing know, cakes yeah. <laughs> so you kind of get colored icing outside the um, boring white
1: icing inside food for thought, and speaking of which, it's well known that what you eat, drink or smoke during pregnancy can have long-term consequences for a developing baby. And now researchers at Cambridge University have discovered that a woman's diet, even before she becomes pregnant, can have lifelong genetic consequences for her offspring. To find out more, Professor Nabil Afara is with us from the University's Department of Pathology. Hello, Nabil. Good evening. So why did you actually do this
7: study and how? Well, this uh, study is really a collaboration between uh, us in the Department of Pathology and Professor David Dunger in the Department of Paediatrics, together with um, Professor Andrew Prentice at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, who heads up the uh, MRC International Nutrition Unit. And it's a study that's based in the, the Gambia, where in rural Gambia there is a chronic shortage of food. And uh, superimposed upon that, you've got a seasonal variation in the soup food supply because the food that they eat is grown in the wet season and that is called the hungry season and then it is harvested in the dry season and that's when food is plentiful.
1: So you've got this nice natural variation in people being relatively well fed and relatively less well fed. That's so right. you can compare the two
7: Exactly. And so um,
1: what did you actually do with well, those people? Well, what,
7: what has been observed here is that with this seasonality, there is an impact on the incidence of infectious disease and mortality amongst young adults. Those born in the wet season, Die at a much younger age and have a much higher burden of infectious disease. So, we wanted to ask the question whether exposures early in pregnancy or even at what we call the periconceptional period, that is, before a woman becomes pregnant, until the time that pregnancy is confirmed, um, whether uh, supplementation of the diet, particularly for deficiencies, known deficiencies in micronutrients, has an impact on this uh, disease burden.
1: So there could be two effects going on. One could be a genetic effect because of the woman becoming deficient in something before or around the time she gets pregnant and that could have a genetic legacy effect in the baby. The other is that the baby could just be exposed to an environment in which it's eating a relatively impoverished diet and that makes it more prone to getting things down the line.
7: That's correct. So what we wanted to ask is whether the offspring of women who received the supplementation compared to women who received a placebo that is exactly the same pill but without the cocktail of minerals and micronutrients, whether when we examined the DNA of, of the offspring of these women there was any difference in the epigenetic state. What's important to understand here is that we're not actually looking for changes in the DNA sequence but actually modifications uh, to the DNA that affect the activity of genes.
1: This is where you get chemical markers, methyl groups, stuck onto the sides of genes that affect how well they get turned on or off. They're like a dimmer switch for genes, aren't they? Exactly.
7: Methylation, as the process is called, it's adding a methyl group onto cytosine, one of the DNA bases, can affect the activity of the gene. But it's one of many epigenetic changes that can take place that modulate the activity of genes. And what appears to be the case is that Once a state is set, this can be a long-term state that is set that may last for the life of the individual.
1: So you got these groups of women, recruited them into the study, randomised them to get either the placebo or the vitamin pills.
7: How did you then follow up the offspring? Well, we uh, took blood at two stages, one at birth from cord blood, and therefore that is blood from from the baby at term, and extracted DNA from that. We then followed that up with blood, peripheral blood, uh, from uh, some of the same children at nine months of age. And we then ran an assay that measures the state of methylation of all genes across the human genome. We were able to do this on a a DNA chip called a, a methylation chip. But essentially it allows you to compare the two states and ask whether there's a difference between the offspring whose mothers received the supplementation and those whose mothers did not receive the supplementation. And what did you find? And what we found was that The supplementation given in in an eight-week period right at the beginning of the pregnancy and before the pregnancy had an impact at term in that there was a difference in a relatively small number of genes in the newborn. But then at nine months, we found many more changes as well. So in a sense, there's a sort of programming going on Early on, an early exposure is programming the genome to have a certain pattern of activity. Uh, you, you
1: at this stage only know that those genes change their pattern. You don't know how that affects the expression, the amount of the genes that exactly. get made. But those genes presumably will give you enormous insights. There's a lot of avenues to follow now to ask, well, what do they do and how do they affect the health outcomes for these children?
7: You've hit the button there in that this work has identified candidates that might be influencing important aspects of the physiology and may give us insights into the pathology that these individuals suffer from. And we need to go on and investigate precisely what those changes mean in terms of the activity of these genes. And to finish up,
1: This is in individuals who are relatively impoverished in terms of their dietary intakes. Yes. What are the implications, though, for people who are eating a relatively good diet? Does this nonetheless say, well, be careful, because there may, if you have micronutrient deficiencies, there may be implications, even if you think you're eating a good diet?
7: This is highly relevant to our own society where food security is more assured. But overeating, exposures to for example, excessive carbohydrate, we know can bring about similar epigenetic changes and may also impact on health at a later stage in life. Diabetes, uh, for example, is a, a very good case in point. Uh, at present time, we are suffering a, an epidemic of diabetes. So it is important, even in societies where there is an abundant food supply, the appropriate balance of nutrients is the key thing here for normal development.
1: Nabil, thank you very much. That's Professor Nabil Farah. He's from the Pathology Department at Cambridge University and you can read the paper he published on that work in the journal Human Molecular Genetics. Nabil, thank you. And now bringing us up uh, with, to date with some more scientific highlights from this week, including the in vitro burger. Here's Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash.
6: The first lab-grown meat is being cooked up by scientists at Maastricht University. Presenting at the AAAS science meeting in Vancouver this week, Mark Post used stem cells from cows to grow strips of muscle tissue two centimetres in length. By combining 3,000 of these with strips of fat tissue also from stem cells, he hopes to make enough minced meat to make a quarter-pound hamburger by the end of the year. If proven to be feasible, the technique could alleviate the environmental burdens of current meat farming practices.
4: The way meat is produced today has lots of problems. Livestock emits lots of greenhouse gases. They, of course, use lots of land and lots of food. One of the biggest problems is that we, in the coming 30 years, we will not have enough meat to feed the world population. So the idea is that in the lab, you have much more variables under control and you can make this process more efficient. And therefore, using the same resources, you can make much more meat.
6: Recent claims of neutrinos travelling faster than the speed of light as part of the OPERA experiment may have been due to problems with equipment. In September, neutrinos were observed to be travelling 0.0025% faster than the speed of light between the CERN facility in Geneva and Grand Sasso Laboratory, 732 kilometres away in Italy. The team behind the experiment have since been checking how these potentially revolutionary results could have occurred and have now identified some flaws in their technique, as Alphonse Weber from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory comments.
4: They found two effects. One of them is that there was a loose optical connection that carries their GPS timing signal underground. And then there was another effect where one of the clocks they were using, or frequency counters, somehow their correction was different from what they originally thought. One of these effects could make the apparent travel time of the neutrinos longer and the other one shorter, and it's not clear which effect would dominate, uh, but they will affect the measurement. This newest information puts very much in doubt that they're the real effect.
6: The tricks used by botulinum neurotoxins to protect themselves as they move through the human body have been revealed by scientists at the Sanford Burnham Medical Research Institute. Although commonly used as a cosmetic due to its ability to paralyze muscle, this poisonous toxin can cause severe illness and paralysis if inhaled or ingested. Using X-ray crystallography, Rongsheng Jin identified the presence of a bodyguard protein, which binds to and protects the toxin as it passes through the harsh environment of the gut and then breaks free, allowing the toxin to enter the bloodstream.
4: We now want to develop small molecules which can uh, mimic the signal which triggers the dissociation of the toxin and its bodyguard. They will break up this tight toxin-bodyguard complex in stomach. Then we can use our own defense system in the stomach, like low pH and digestive protease, to kill the toxin before it could even uh, penetrate the intestine. And by doing so, we will have a, a new strategy to fight these toxins.
6: And finally, it seems fish have a sweet smell for fear. When fish such as zebrafish are injured, they're known to release chemicals signalling for the rest of their shoal to escape in fear. Suresh Sudarsan and colleagues from the National University of Singapore have now found the crucial component of this signal to be the sugar chondroitin sulphate, found in fish skin. It's thought the sugar is broken down by enzymes activated during injury – releasing the sugar fragments into the surrounding environment.
4: When the chondroitin sulfate fragments are released, they bind to the olfactory sensory neurons in the other fish, which then triggers a signal to the olfactory bulb, and this subsequently activates various fear centers within the brain. There's one very curious aspect about the alarm response, which is that it's concentration-dependent. So, we have a little bit of it, you have a mild fear response, and if you have a lot, you have a strong fear response. This is very unusual for any odorant. So, this is a good way to see how you can induce different fear states.
6: And the paper is published this week in the journal Current Biology.
1: Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist News Flash and all those stories, including the ones you heard earlier in the programme, as well as their references, can be found on our website at nakedscientists.com forward slash news. Time now for this week's Planet Earth and building an instrument to fly on board a satellite is a feat of precision engineering. It's got to be robust enough to withstand the launch, sophisticated enough to produce new science and, since you can't easily call out a repairman, very reliable. Since a huge amount of environmental science now takes place on board satellites, Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson visited RAL Space at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in Oxfordshire, where she met observation scientist Hugh Mortimer to find out how they ensure their space-based equipment is accurate.
5: The Rutherford Appleton Laboratories has been sending instruments into space to measure sea surface temperature since the early 80s. That gives us a continual data record of temperatures, which we can then use to identify trends within the climate, and we can use to then look at different aspects, such as climate change and how the sea is warming up. Now, you're
6: involved in an instrument that's going to fly on board a satellite for this.
5: The instrument that we are calibrating is a large European space agency project. Within the next few years it will be launched and operational and it will be providing data for the scientific community both for operational purposes, so for the Met Office, for providing weather forecasts because essentially the temperature of the ocean really drives the weather that we get in Europe. The other thing that we're trying to do is then use this data to look at climate change and climate records. So the instruments that we're developing and building here, we're then calibrating before it gets launched into space and therefore we know precisely how accurate that instrument is at measuring sea surface. So we've just walked into the molecular spectroscopy facility and within this facility we have the ways and means of calibrating ground-based instrumentation. We use spectrometers primarily to look at the differences in, in how light interacts with materials around us, both solid, liquids and gases. And what we're doing is then we use that information to give us essentially data on how much Gas is present or the qualities of that particular gas. Here in this laboratory, we also have something called the SISTER instrument, which is the scanning infrared sea surface temperature radiometer.
6: And SISTER actually goes on board a, a ship, doesn't yeah. it? The Queen Mary II.
5: We're very privileged to have this collaboration with Cunard, where we are able to put our instruments on the side of these really prestigious, beautiful ships where we can measure sea surface temperature in exactly the same way that the satellites measure sea surface temperature, and from which we can then take the instrument that we know very well, that we've calibrated at the labs, and then cross-compare the sea surface temperatures as the satellite passes overhead of the Queen Mary 2.
6: And how accurate have they been?
5: About 10 millikelvin, which is pretty accurate.
6: So where do we go to see your instrument?
5: OK, we can go through to this laboratory over here
6: another
5: door here. And now we're in the heart of the spectroscopy facility itself. So what we're looking at are two very high-resolution spectrometers. One is used for measuring solid-phase materials, aerosols, dust, and the other one, a much higher-resolution spectrometer. It's about half a tonnes worth of equipment that's used to measure gases. We look at pure concentrations of materials such as methane, carbon dioxide, water vapour, And then we can look at how the light interacts with those materials, um, those gases, to actually change the light as it passes through. So the instruments in space looks at specific wavelengths of light. These spectrometers can break down those bands even further. So essentially they can look at different wavelengths across the spectrum. So the wavelengths that the radiometer will be looking at both the radiometer in space and the radiometer, the sister, they will be looking at very specific wavelengths. While these instruments are able to measure different components, not only temperature, but also how that radiation is affected by the gases and the materials it interacts with.
6: And the spectrometer is sort of like... I always think of it as like the workhorse for space science and astronomy.
5: Yeah, that's right. They really kind of underpin a lot of the knowledge that we have about the world around us. It allows us to see in-depth where our eyes can't view essentially they allow us to probe the interaction between radiation and the gases that you can't see with your eyes because these instruments work in the infrared they get to understand the impact of how light absorbs thermal radiation and then how it emits thermal radiation so essentially looking at the climate change effect the climate greenhouse gases and how that thermal radiation is actually stored and then emitted in different wavelengths.
1: Hugh Mortimer from RAL Space. And you can hear a longer version of that report from Sue Nelson on the Planet Earth podcast. You can follow the link on our website to find it.
0: Distilling the best science, the naked scientists.
1: So Hannah, this is a yucky question. Kate Taylor says, I'm in the US. I love, love your podcast. Listen to it while I work. I'm a graphic designer. So when your program's on, I get a sort of left brain, right brain thing going on. Anyway, I was wondering, why do we have earwax? What's it for? How's it made? What would happen if we didn't clean it out once in a while? Yum. (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's not yum, it's yuck. So earwax is uh, made in the outer um, canal of your ear. So your outer ear is, is basically the bit that you can see. It's a bit that funnels all of the, the pressures, the sound wave pressure, and funnel it into your middle ear and your inner ear, which then converts those sound wave pressures into um, electrical energy, uh, which you can then um, use to hear. And earwax, or cerumen is produced by your outer ear, and it basically acts as a lubricant to help the um, the sound waves to travel through, and it also protects against nasty bugs from sitting up, sitting in your in your ear, and multiplying there and causing infections. So, so ca- perhaps counterintuitively, it's actually quite a cleansing thing to have, as long as you don't have too much of it. If there's too much of it, then it, it can cause a blockage um, and prevent the sound waves from passing through into your middle ear,
1: and and therefore cause impairments or problems with your hearing. Problem. Sorry, just kidding. Dave, I've got a question here from uh, Jared Wainwright who says, do we receive less microwave radiation when we're using a wired headset? He's referring to when you have a hands-free system on a mobile phone because mobile phones, of course, use microwaves.
3: Um, Yes, indeed. It actually depends on the hands-free system. The problem that can happen, and someone discovered in a study a couple of years back, was that some of them were actually receiving the transmissions which the mobile phone was making and sort of funneling them up the wires into your ears. Because the microwaves are making electrical current flow up Um, and down the wires. Yeah, that's exactly right. So essentially you have a funnel into your ear um, which can act, could actually cause the similar if not higher doses around your ears than you would get otherwise. How does it turn from an electric current back into a microwave in your ear then? Essentially any rapidly changing electrical current will produce um, electromagnetic radiation and, and therefore effectively it would be transmitting microwaves all the way up. Um, it sh- should be electronically quite easy to stop that. You just put in a filter which blocks the high frequency radiation but not all um, headphones apparently had them So, yes,
1: it depends is the answer. He goes on to say, is a microwave oven, which is shielded, it has all this protection to stop the microwaves coming out, therefore less dangerous than a mobile phone? Um, entirely depends on whether you're in the, in the oven or not. Um, if you're
3: actually in the oven... No, Ideally not. <laughs> I mean, it's, the, the whole thing is um, the problems you get from microwaves, the biggest problem is heating. Um, the reason why a microwave oven could cause you damage and, uh, and cooks meat is that it puts a huge amount of heat into there. All the uh, amounts of heat which should be outside a microwave oven or coming from a mobile phone aren't going to be enough to significantly
1: change the temperature of your body. So a microwave is running at, say, a kilowatt, whereas your phone is running at milliwatts. So the heating effect of your phone on your tissue, i.e. your brain that it's, it's irradiating, is going to be tiny in comparison. Exactly, yeah. Hannah?
2: Well, Chris, I think I've got a question for you. It's Jeremy Baker via Facebook, and he asks, how does the dam-
1: damage caused by EM radiation change with frequency, and what about intensity? This is kind of relevant, isn't it, Dave, from what we've just been saying? Well, the answer is that as the wavelength of radiation, light EM radiation, gets shorter, in other words, the frequency increases, then it packs a more energetic punch. So at long wavelengths, like radio waves and microwaves, we regard this radiation as non-ionising. In other words when it impacts on something, it does not have enough energy to physically disrupt the bonds that connect atoms together. And for that reason, it means that when you are hit by this radiation, although it will warm up your tissue because it will make the particles vibrate more and get hotter, it will not physically break the bonds between them, so it should not trigger, for instance, mutations in DNA that could cause cancer. But as you go into shorter and shorter wavelengths of radiation, so you go beyond UV and you're into X rays and then gamma rays, this is light with a very high frequency very short wavelength, where the light has sufficient energy to physically disrupt chemical bonds. It it literally breaks the bonds between atoms, and this means you can introduce changes to your DNA, you can introduce damage to material in cells, which can then stress cells, so it can damage tissue, and it can also introduce cancer-causing mutations. So that's why we worry about ionising short wavelength radiation, we're less concerned about, say, holding a mobile phone to our head because that's microwaves which are not said to be ionising. Dave, um, on the subject of heating things, not quite microwaves, but it is down to radiation in one respect. Here's a question for you.
7: Hi, Naked Scientists. This is Paul from Woldingham in Surrey. My question concerns the Earth and its surface temperature. When you consider the enormous amount of heat below the Earth's crust, and in particular how relatively thin the crust is in comparison to the mantle and core, why isn't the Earth's surface so much warmer? What is it about that crust that dissipates the heat so rapidly? And I guess taking it to its extremes, what crust thickness would you need around the sun to safely walk on its surface? Thanks for a great show.
3: The interesting thing about this question is it doesn't particularly matter what the crust is made out of. What's really important is how much power is coming out of the Earth every second, because the Earth is essentially a body sitting in a vacuum, and there's an equation which relates the temperature of that body to the amount of power it can lose per square metre. Um, and the earth is losing actually only about um, 0.1 watts per square metre from geothermal sources over the whole of the surface and this means that if it was just sitting in the middle of space with no sun anywhere near it you can work out the temperature it should be and it should be at about minus 239 degrees centigrade but it's not but it's not, that's because the sun's shining on it and heating it up all the time now, you also asked how big the sun would have to be, how thick a layer of crust you'd have to be over the sun in order to get it down to the temperature we could walk on. Um, I use the same equations. I said that you probably walk on something at about 60 degrees centigrade. It might hurt. But, Ouch. It, but it's just about possible. <laughs> um, and something at about 60 degrees centigrade can lose about 664 watts per square metre. Um, in one in one direction, and if you work out the size, the sun would have to be to be losing heat at about that rate. It's about two hundred and thirteen million kilometers
1: um, radius. Oh, well, that's, that's way bigger than the sun is at the moment. I mean, <laughs> so it's, even that's well beyond the orbit of, of us.
3: Yes, it, so the sun would have to be enormous. And actually, it doesn't matter what insulation you put in there. If you leave the sun for long enough, it will be pumping out that heat all the time. That'll get to the surface. In fact, if you insulated the sun, it would probably actually, of course, get hotter in the centre, increase the rate of reaction, and actually get even hotter, increase the, re- the power release. So it would actually probably be even hotter and need to be
1: even bigger. Um, so, yes, rather implausible, I think. In Star Trek, they talk about... Is it a Dyson sphere where people create a a structure around a star in order to capture all of the energy coming out of the star and then do various nefarious, or maybe not, things with it? But that would mean you'd basically end up having to contain something that would be 200 million kilometres across then if if you allowed it to expand, you'd need something huge.
3: Yes um, this was I think invented by Freeman Dyson who was looking at if you took a kind of limit of technology and you're staying in one solar system, what would you do to it? How could you extract all the energy out of a star? And therefore, you want to, if you want to uh, um, collect all that heat, you then have to get rid of it at a sensible temperature. So you need something out at about the orbit of Mars. You have to build a sphere about the orbit of Mars. Um, and then that would be radiating out. And it would be absolutely immense and, and incredible technology for to, to do it. And I wonder how much material you would need to make a sphere as big as that in the first place. Uh, immense amounts. And just the physical strength of a hollow sphere that
1: size is, I think, completely implausible. At the moment. (laughs) Thanks, Dave. Leave it a few million years. had a bit of chat going on in Second Life. Hello to all of you. They're wondering why does earwax taste so terrible? And they're also speculating how many calories there are in it. There must be a few prodigious ear picker and eaters in there. Right, well, it's time to get experimental now. Dave and Hannah have actually left the building because they're doing something slightly dangerous. Well, ish. With a candle, a jar, a bowl and some water. Over to you, Hannah. What have you got up your sleeve?
2: Hello Chris, so um, we're currently, myself and Dave are currently in the car park of the BBC Studios and Dave, what, what is it that you've got in the back of your boot here?
3: Well, I've got a candle, which is the reason why we're out here and I've got the candle sitting in the middle of a very flat bowl with about half a centimetre of water in the bottom so I'll light the candle now so that candle is now burning away nicely in the middle of the bowl I'm now going to, I've got a jar, which in a moment I'm going to put over the top of a candle. But first of all, I'm going to put three coins around underneath so it doesn't lock onto the bottom and stop stuff hitting the ground. And the coins are arranged about the same diameter as the jar itself. So I'm now going to put the jar over the top and we're going to see what happens. So there are a few bubbles to start with.
2: Oh, and so now that the fire, oh wow, okay, so the candle's extinguished itself and the candle's actually raising up upwards in the jar, Dave, what's going on there <laughs>
3: Well, one thing which a lot of people explain this as is that a candle has burnt up all the oxygen, so there's less oxygen there, takes up less space, and the water comes up to take up the space. That's not entirely true. Uh, A candle stops burning when a very, very small percentage of the oxygen is used up, maybe only three or four percent of the oxygen used up, and actually most of the oxygen which is being used up is actually turned into carbon dioxide, which takes up just as much space as the oxygen. So the overall effect is only about one percent change in volume, and that was near a ten percent. So something else going on and when we put it in there was some bubbling and that's actually explaining what's going on because the candle is producing very, very hot air, hot gases. Hot gases are bigger than cold gases. So we put them over, they were expanding, and they escaped out the bottom by the bubbling you may or may not have heard, but certainly I saw. And that means that once the candle goes out, because it uses up all all the oxygen it can use, and it goes out, um, then that hot gas is up there and it quickly cools down, and as it cools down it shrinks and then reduces its pressure, which which allows water to come up from the sides and take up that space, and it moves up about 10% of the volume
2: which then caused the candle to rise up in the jam jar and, and float upwards with the water. That's fantastic. So, I mean, that's a really cool experiment, and it looks great out here. But, um, Dave, what are the applications for this? What's what's the relevance of it? It
3: was actually
2: effectively
3: the first successful steam engine worked on a very similar principle to this. Rather than using hot air, they actually used steam. So they would get a cylinder... Um, They didn't want to use pressurised steam because all of their um, steels were rubbish and everything tended to explode. So they squirted steam into the cylinder. Um, They then squirted cold water in, which caused it to shrink, pull the cylinder down, and that pulled the pump up, and it pumped water out of the mines.
2: Thanks, Dave. And if you want to find out more about this experiment and other ones, then visit our website, thenakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science.
1: Hannah, thank you to you and Dave. You can come in out the cold now. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Dave Ansell and with Hannah Critchlow. Lots of questions coming in here. JC Chong says uh, on Twitter, what can accelerate the speed of your body's metabolism? Well the best one is actually thyroxine, the hormone that comes from your thyroid gland in your neck. This binds to your DNA in different cells in the body and it turns on various genes and ups your metabolic rate. And if you have too little thyroxine you become hypothyroid and you get very cold, you tend to put on lots of weight, you can get your muscles feeling very weak, it's hard to think straight and people have no energy and pretty much the reverse happens if you have too much thyroxine. Mr Ford in Ipswich was wondering why you get so much build up of earwax that he can't actually hear. Well earwax production and characteristics vary genetically people who come from East Uh, Asia tend to have very dry earwax whereas people who come from the West tend to have genes that cause them to have wetter earwax, that's the first thing you tend to up the production of earwax if it's got a job to do so if you're in a very dusty, dirty environment or if you have infections locally you make more earwax in order to soak up the dirt and prevent the bugs from creating more of an ingress the downside is that the cerumen the thick wax can build up and block your ear canal you sometimes have to soften it with something like olive oil so that you can get it out easily uh, paul herrington's wondering dave i wonder if you can do this in a minute uh, will having my mobile phone in my trouser pocket affect my sperm count ouch i i have absolutely no idea i think this is more of a medical question than a physics one <laughs> well it's more the sort of dose and that kind of thing isn't it because they did do studies on laptops they did a study looking at men's sperm counts and Trouser temperatures and found that if you put your laptop on your lap as nature intended you to use it, or at least the manufacturers intended you to use it, the elevation in temperature in the trouser area is of the order of several degrees. And this was sufficient to cause a decrement in sperm count because sperm gets made most optimally at a lower temperature, maybe one degree lower. Than, yeah. uh, than other times. So mobile phones do cause a heating effect because of the micros, don't they?
3: But probably much less than a laptop, probably at least a tenth as much. So I'd have thought you'd have difficulty heating that particular
1: region from your side pocket unless you've got a very strange pocket. <laughs> and, and also the intensity must be lower. The, the actual heating intensity oh. of, of the microwaves coming out probably wouldn't be enough oh, to the, put the temperature on. the actual um,
3: microwave, even when it's running, if you're actually talking on the phone, it's only a couple of watts. Whereas a laptop, just the heat is just coming straight out. It could be up to 100 watts, which
1: was far, far larger. Reassuring, he says, taking his mobile phone out of his pocket. Right, well, mixing things up a bit, time for our question of the week with Hannah.
2: This week, we hop along to a question just in from Vinny in Greater Manchester. As the joke goes, if you cross a kangaroo with a sheep, you get a woolly
4: jumper. Is it now possible with modern techniques across different animals to make one completely new species?
2: So to what extent can we genetically manipulate an organism to produce a new one? Here's Professor Martin Bobrow from Cambridge University.
4: I think it's mind-blowing that one can take a gene which performs a certain function in yeast and put it into a human cell and it still works. However, does that mean that we can make new species? And I think the answer to that probably at the moment is not by quite a long shot.
2: Thanks, Martin. Veronica van Heeningen, Professor of Genetics at Edinburgh University, explains.
6: Combining eggs and sperm from different species very rarely works, except for closely related species like horse and donkey, which can mate together and form a novel hybrid animal known as a mule. Mules can develop to birth and survive to adulthood, but they are not fertile. The mixed horse and donkey chromosomes can't produce viable eggs and sperm. A sheep cannot be crossed with a kangaroo because even if we had sperm and eggs available, we would not succeed in making hybrid animals by in vitro fertilization or IVF because development requires two sets of similar parental genes. The genes from sheep cannot work with genes from a kangaroo to drive development, producing hybrid shigaroos and kangareeps.
2: Veronica and Martin discussed other ways that we can combine and tweak genes, including transferring one or two genes from humans into another species. And a line of goats have recently been created in this way to help patients who can't produce their own anticoagulant there's also chimeras, where stem cells from different species are mixed. For example, there's a mouse with human liver cells. And we hope that we can use this mouse to help evaluate the safety of drugs, since the liver plays such an important role in drug metabolism. But Martin emphasises...
4: So there are lots of examples of that sort, but all of those mice look like mice, and all of those goats look like goats. And none of them produce what you'd need for it to be a new species. That is something which has a distinctive appearance and which can continue breeding in a way that you have created something that propagates itself. Even the natural species mixtures, mules, there are zebra horse crosses and lion tiger crosses, but they're sterile. They do look pretty intermediate, but they don't breed. So we haven't got to the point of creating new species yet.
2: And with that old joke discussed with a modern perspective, we skip seawards to examine what's in our oceans.
0: Hello, this is Jim from Smithfield, Virginia. I have a question about when will indestructible plastics finally degrade? I understand that acrylic, polystyrene and polyester plastics make up most of the growing body of waste plastic in the ocean and that this stuff never breaks down but just gets fragmented and eventually ingested by living organisms. But we know that nothing
2: persists forever. So these plastics have to break down at some point. Send your thoughts to Chris at com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page or join in the debate on our forum, which is at NakedScientists.com
1: slash forum. Anna Critchlow, and I reckon Jeff should be doing the voices from the movies if he doesn't already. He could make a fortune. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, on the subject of what does and doesn't break down... Next time, we're going through your bins to look at the science of waste and rubbish and recycling. You can email your questions in to chrisanakedscientist.com or put them on our Facebook page. Thank you to our guests, Nabila Farah, and to our production team, Ben Vowsler and Mira Senthilingam. Have a great week. See you next time.